0: Hey, good morning, Salt Church. My name is Ryan, and I am one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. How many of you were over there last week with us for the Combined Worship Service of Northwest? A whole bunch of you, yeah. Yeah, wasn't it fun to, like, gather together and to celebrate 11 baptisms? It was just a beautiful time together. One little, like, side note, I would just ask of you guys, would you be praying for the leaders of Salt Church and the leaders of Northwest Baptist, we are in the middle of a conversation about what it might look like for us to do church together as one church instead of two churches kind of meeting on the same campus. And there is a lot of wisdom needed. There is a lot of clarity that we are asking God to provide in that process. And so we would just ask you, would you join us in praying? We really want to do what God most desires, what would be the best for both churches. And so, join us in praying. But but wasn't last week fun? Like, wasn't it incredible to see so many people just standing on that stage to say, I have given my life to Jesus. He has entered in with the beauty of the gospel that says, I can be forgiven of my sin and free of the consequences of my sin and to publicly proclaim in front of a whole bunch of people what it means to commit their life to Jesus. It is so fun in a service like that one to get like swept up in the emotion and the joy and the beauty of it all. But but here's what I found myself wondering, even as we like left that service last week, I I wonder how many people had questions, right? Because if you grew up in church or you've been around church for a long time, everything that happened probably made sense to you. But if not, What in the world was that? 11 people with their clothes on got in front of a bunch of people in a big tank of water and had somebody dunk them and bring them back up. Can we, that's just weird. Like that's, if you don't know what's going on, like that is just kind of weird, right? People, as we sang songs, were raising their hands. People had tears in their eyes. Why? Like that doesn't make sense. You might have questions about that. But maybe for some of you in the room, your questions wouldn't be practical ones about a gathering of people in worship, but maybe your questions are a little more personal and a little deeper to you, right? Like, why does that person have joy in their life when all I feel is anxiety and fear and worry? God, why is that? You've maybe heard of God and Jesus and Holy Spirit, like three people, one person, who is it? What are they doing? Like you may have real questions that you would like to ask God, And and you should have questions. Anytime we consider the things of God, it will leave us in a place of having questions. And I hope that I can let you breathe a little easy this morning and to say, it is okay to bring your questions to God. In fact, he welcomes them and he invites them, right? God isn't worried that you're gonna stump him with your questions or confuse him. Like he's not afraid of your questions. You might confuse one of us humans or trying to do our best to follow him and understand him. You will never confuse God or leave him without an answer to your questions. He is saying like, bring them, bring your questions. But let me ask you a question about asking God questions. And it's this. What is it that you expect to hear when you ask God a question? What is it that you are looking for or listening for or seeking after? When you come before God, when you open your Bible or you pray to him and you bring your question to him, what is it that you are expecting to hear? in the text that we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 22 today, there's going to be a whole bunch of questions asked of Jesus. And here's what we're going to learn. And it's the first half of our big idea today. Here's what we're going to find out. Jesus has the answers. Like he does. He has the answers. He is never stumped. He is never confused. People will bring questions to Jesus and we're going to find out he has answers for their questions. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring yours with you, it will be on the screen for you to read along. Matthew chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 15, but remember, this is the last week of the life of Jesus, right? We have read a bunch of Matthew. We've been in this book for a long time. We've seen a lot of the life of Jesus, and yet now we're in a section that's like his last week, the last part of his life. And as we've seen, if you've been with us, you have seen the life of Jesus is becoming one that is more and more prominent and known. Like people in the region, people in the area are getting to know this Jesus. More people recognize him. More people are coming to him to be healed. People are starting to call him son of David. We're going to find out what that means today. Um, The people of Jerusalem, the leaders of this Jewish religion, this Jewish faith, They are seeing Jesus become more prominent, and they are asking, like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And what is he doing? What is he teaching? Why is he here? And so they're going to bring some questions, but we're going to find out. There are questions beneath the questions, and Jesus is ready. Here we go. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. And then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and they went away. Notice their motive. We get it right at the beginning of this passage that they plotted how to trap him. They wanted to trick him. They weren't coming to Jesus to learn They weren't looking for truthful answers. They were trying to trap him, right? The Pharisees, we have encountered them many times in the book of Matthew. These Pharisees who are the leaders of the religious party, who have been in constant conflict with Jesus, they're frustrated with him. And so they're gonna try to trap him in his words. And so they send the Herodians. Now, one thing we must know is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't get along. They actually weren't like friends with each other. The Herodians were Pro-Rome, the government that was kind of in control and in rule over them. And the Pharisees actually believed that the Romans were abusive and oppressive of them. And so they were anti-Rome. You've got pro-Rome Herodians, anti-Rome Pharisees. They don't get along, but for this, they come together. They want to trap and trick Jesus. And so they ask a question about paying taxes. Now, a question about paying taxes doesn't seem that malicious, does it? It feels like a reasonable question. Should we pay taxes or not? Here's what we've got to understand. Because the amount of this particular tax was a denarius, which is about a day's wage, it is likely that the tax they were talking about was called the Rome Census Tax or the Rome Head Tax so it wasn't like income tax where you make a certain amount of money and you give a percentage of that to the government so that they'll protect you and have a military to provide a force for you. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a property tax where you pay a percentage of the value of your property so that they would provide infrastructure and the things that you need. The Roman head tax, the Jewish people believed, was one that you had to pay because Roman, the Roman government viewed it that they owned you, that you were theirs. And the Jewish people, some of them believe that if you pay this Roman census head tax, this one denarius, that you are saying to the Roman government, I agree, you own me. And the Pharisees are saying, you can't pay that tax, right, because you are gods, you are not Rome's. Like God owns you, you are gods, you are not Rome's. And so the the Pharisees and many Jewish people, they opposed this tax and they didn't pay it. Now you can see why this question is so tricky, right? Because if Jesus would say, don't pay the tax, the Roman government would be at his door and they would be ready to arrest him and punish him, right? But if he says, hey, you should pay the tax, then the Jewish people think he agrees with Rome, that Rome owns us and that God doesn't. What's he gonna do? Well, here's what he says. He says, grab me a coin, look at it. What does it say? Whose picture is on it? Well, the picture on the coin is Caesar. And so he's like, it seems pretty simple. Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And then here's how he finishes that. He says, and give to God what is God's. Here's what he's saying. He said, you have it all wrong. Paying this tax to the government of Rome doesn't mean that they own you, right? You can pay the tax and still give your life and your commitment and your devotion and your worship to God. Pay the tax and give your life to God. He splits the thing that they had put together. See, these people, they came to Jesus to trap him and to trick him, and he had an answer. He had an answer that was truth, but it wasn't the answer that they were looking for. See, remember, again, they viewed this coming Messiah as one who would be a political leader, one who would deal in kingdoms and taxes and governments, and he is showing them, that's not who I am. That's not who the Messiah is. Pay the taxes to the government. Give to God what he deserves, your worship. He has an answer. Look at the next section, verse 23. That same day, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That was the way they would continue the family lineage, would be to take the brother's wife, and have children and continue the lineage. Verse 25, here's where it gets crazy. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also, and the third, and so on to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection then, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That is like Jesus's version of smack talk, right? Like you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Here comes the next question to Jesus. And it really is this like conjured up crazy hypothetical situation about seven dudes who married a woman and then died and then, and then died and kept going. Right? And, and just a general point of advice, if somebody comes up to you with this crazy hypothetical situation and tries to get you to make a statement about what you believe on it, don't fall into their trap. Or they're just trying to trick you. It's what they're doing to Jesus here Right, the first story, the first encounter, the Pharisees were working with the Herodians who they didn't get along with. Well, in this section, they're working with the Sadducees. They also don't get along with them. See, the Sadducees were in, they had a lot of power within the religious system, but the Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection. They didn't believe in eternity or afterlife. They believed that once you were dead, you're dead. Like your life on this earth was the only one. It's when your life was over, your life is over. And some people in our day and age who also believe that, take that as an excuse to just live a crazy and wild life on this earth. That's not what the Sadducees did. They actually were like hyper-fundamentalists. They paid attention to every rule and every law, and they worked as hard as they could to obey every single one of them and make sure everybody else obeyed them as well. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't get along. The Sadducees even went as far as to say, The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those were actually the only true spoken words of God and the rest of the Bible was just man's commentary. But they would look at those first five books and say, whatever those books say, that's what's true. And that's what we hold to. And because they would look at those five books and in their opinion, they would say they never speak of the resurrection. That God never speaks of the resurrection in those five books, there must not be one. There must not be an afterlife. There must not be eternity. So naturally, a whole group of people who don't believe in the resurrection come to Jesus and ask him a question about the resurrection. Right? Like, they're not trying to understand what's true. They're trying to trick and trap Jesus. And so hit pause for me with me for just a second. Right, the first half of our big idea. It was that Jesus has the answers. I believe that he has. All the answers to all the questions that you and I could ever come up with. And he isn't afraid of the questions that we would bring to him. Right? He's not like your science professor who's just kind of annoyed that you would ask him a question outside of class. No, think of God like the father who welcomes in his children. Bring to me your concerns. Bring to me your questions. I will answer them. I will give you what's true. But know this if you come to Jesus with questions not to learn or to grow or understand the heart of God. If you come to Jesus with questions for the sake of trapping him and tricking him, he will make you look like a fool with truth. And it might be truth that you don't want to hear. Be careful in the motives that we have when we come to Jesus with questions. Look at what he says to these guys. You are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, right? These religious leaders who had given their entire life to understanding and defending the scriptures, he is telling them, you don't even get it. Like you don't even understand them. Oh, and on top of that, you don't understand the power of God to resurrect the dead and to make them alive. You've given your life to following this thing and you don't even understand it. In fact, he's going to quote some scripture for them. Guess what book he goes to? Exodus, one of their favorites, one of the ones that they trusted and relied on. Guess who God is speaking to in Exodus that he brings up? Moses, the guy who they would say, this is God's chosen leader. This is who God spoke directly to. Moses, like ultimate guy in the Jewish face, Moses. And Jesus is like, I'll quote his words for you. And here's what he said. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Well, who are those three people? Those three are ancestors of Moses, but they have been dead for a long time. Like they lived their lives, they were dead and buried. So according to the Sadducees, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had lived their one life and they had died their one death and there was no more of them. There would be no future for them. There would be no eternity for them. And what does God say to Moses? He says, I am Like, am, currently, presently. Like, in the moment, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If God saw them as dead and over, he would have said, I was their God. He might have said, I used to be their God. But he says, no, I am their God, currently, now. The book that the Sadducees clung to, the person that they looked to, disproved their belief that God could raise people from the dead. That God would exist in eternity in the resurrection. See, the Sadducees, they came to trap, they came to trap Jesus and He confronted them boldly with what's true. He confronted them with what's true. See, Jesus has all the answers to all the questions. That's why he invites our questions. That's why he encourages us to bring what we're struggling with and what we're wondering about but here's the reality because Jesus has all the answers and because all of his answers are true that is also why i do this and i think you probably do this if you'll admit it sometimes don't we like not want to come to Jesus with our questions like because we we know he knows what's right and we might be a little bit afraid that what he says is different than what i think or what i want sometimes we would rather not ask isn't that true Sometimes we would rather continue to believe what we want or what we think is best and to not approach him. Right if if you're wanting to like date a non-believer and and you're not sure if that's a good thing, right? Who are you most likely to run and ask that question to? Not to God in the Bible and to Jesus, right? You're going to go ask your non-Christian friends cuz they'll probably tell you what you want. Right? If you want to keep all of your money to yourself, that you're probably not gonna open the Bible and say, God, what would you like me to do with my money? Right, if you feel, if you you kind of enjoy this feeling of superiority over people, if you don't wanna help somebody who doesn't look like you or doesn't vote like you, you're probably not gonna come to Jesus and say, Jesus, how would you like me to think about them? His invitation, his expectation is that we would run to him with our questions because he will give us what's true. Unfortunately, part of the battle is sometimes we just don't want to ask. He's calling us to something different. Two groups so far in our text, they came to him with questions. But let's be honest, like these aren't questions you walked into here this morning with, were they? Like, did anybody walk into this room saying, I wonder if I should pay the Roman census tax to the government of Rome? Nobody. Anybody, raise your hand if you walked in here wondering, hey, if somebody, if some woman is married to seven men on this earth, what will happen in heaven? Like, anybody asks, none of us are asking those questions. Thankfully, there's some questions coming that are feel a little more pertinent. Look at this next section, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. Okay, they have sent the Herodians, they've sent the Sadducees, none of that worked. They're ready to take them on themselves. One of them, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. "'Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest?' And he said to them, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul and with all your mind. "'This is the greatest and most important command. "'The second is like it, love your neighbor neighbor as yourself. "'All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands.'" All right, another question, but it is another question that was brought with the desire to trap and trick Jesus. We talk often around here that Jesus came to this earth and lived the perfect life, and that is true. He never did anything wrong, but here's what's more incredible to me. It's not only that he, that he didn't do any wrong actions, he never spoke one wrong word with one wrong motive or with even a sinful tone, right? Like we can even get sarcastic and, and we can get smart about the way we say things. Like Jesus never once fell into the trap of sinning with his words, He was perfect in all that he said and did. And here's what the Pharisees are trying to get him to do. They're trying to trick him up with what he says. Because here's what they're thinking. See, the Pharisees, they knew of all of the laws of God. And there were hundreds of them. There were hundreds of laws of God. And they saw all of them as equally valuable and equally needing to be upheld and followed. So their question is, hey, which one is the greatest? Because they believe if Jesus picks one, then he is devaluing or diminishing the others. And that's going to get him in trouble. All right, so they say, hey, which one is the greatest? Now, whose words does he quote? Moses. Moses, again, the guy that all of the Pharisees looked to as the man, as the leader, as the one who would hear from God. He goes back and he quotes the very words of Moses, that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So once again, the Pharisees are in a bind. They asked him a question they thought would trick him, and he quotes the very words of Moses, who they trusted and believed in. And then Jesus, like, tacks on another one. He's like, "Oh, love the Lord your God, and also love the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself." Like that is one that is like it. For all the law and prophets hang on this command. Depend on these two commands. Everything else. Every other law, every other command, every other expectation of God, it falls under one of these two categories, love God or love others. See, Jesus wasn't diminishing the other commands. He was saying, no, the motivation for every law and every command falls under one of these two categories. You're either gonna love God or you're gonna love others. And anything counter to that is sinful, it's not good. Think about it for a moment. Everything that God says in this book you can categorize in one of two ways this is either how i love god or this is how i love others right and and those two big categories those two big motivations they don't negate some of the more detailed commands right god would never look at you and say in the name of loving others i'm going to violate what the bible says because i'm trying to love somebody he would say those are two not those two things are not in opposition to each other they work together to obey the things that god has given How do the Pharisees respond? Our text actually doesn't give us a response. I think once again, they're found speechless. They're left without an answer and without a response. They brought questions to Jesus to trap him. But what do we keep finding out about Jesus? He has the answers, doesn't he? And he has the right ones and he has the truth. So if you come to Jesus with questions that you don't really want the true answers to, you're gonna be disappointed. That's what the Pharisees found. But let me ask you a question, and this is where I want to just, like, hit pause and try to get a little more practical. What do you think it looks like to come to Jesus with your questions? Like, what do you think it practically looks like for you, sitting in this room with a question that you would like to ask God? What does it look like for you to come to him and ask him a question? Right? After every service, we have people down front who are eager to pray with you. Jesus will not be standing down here later for you to just walk up to him and ask him a question. He's not. That's how it worked in the first century. That's not true today. And I am confident that there are people in this room, me included, with genuine, real questions that we would like to ask God. Answers that we're not sure about. Truths that we want to learn. So what does it look like to practically come to him and just Ask the questions that we have. Here's a couple things I think I, I, that I have found helpful. And the first one is, is one that I have found to be maybe the most foolproof one of all. And it's simply to open the Bible and see if Jesus has answered that question before. Or like if you have a situation or a struggle or a question and you can open the pages of scripture and see that exact scenario again, you can just look and see how did God respond. How did he react? What did he say? God never changes. His actions in this Bible are his actions in his character today. Open the Bible and look and see what he said, right? If you've got questions about divorce or sexuality or paying taxes or anger or lust, there are concrete answers in your Bible. And if you would like really love to hear the audible voice of God, just ask somebody to read it to you and they can read it to you and you will hear the words of God as he speaks into your situation. The second option, and I I would do both of these together, is, is in prayer, just ask God. Just ask him. In James 1, he tells us that if anybody lacks wisdom, he should ask God and God will give him wisdom. So just in prayer... Ask God, whether that's audibly out loud or written in your prayer journal, however you pray, just go to God and say, God, I have a question. Would you answer it for me? And you may sense this peace or this calm as you think about an answer. That might be God speaking to you. You may feel this intense pressure from the Holy Spirit in your, in your being and in your gut. That might be God speaking to you to give you an answer. Just ask him. He has the answers and he wants to give you truth. But here's a third one. And again, I would pair one and two and three together. And it's this, when I am seeking to understand the truth of God, I will try to pull in people that I know walk with Jesus and ask them what they think. Ask them the advice that they would give me. Invite them into the process of praying and wrestling and struggling with me with this issue. Right? It might be your connection group leader or one of the leaders in this church or a parent or a trusted friend, somebody who loves God and loves you and wants what's best for you. Ask them what they think. Right? Don't go find your friends that will always tell you what you want to hear. Don't always go find the people that won't point you to Scripture and won't point you back to God, but will always just ask you to use your own reasoning and your own thought, what's logical, what's logical. Don't ask the people that just tell you whatever your heart desires, that must be best. That is false. That is not true. Find somebody who loves you enough to say, I think you're wrong. I think you're off. I think God would challenge you and push you to think differently. Paul, one of the pastors here, he often will say, the voice of God sounds like the chorus of men. And here's what he means, that if the men and women around you who love God and walk with Jesus are all beginning to point you in the same direction, that is likely God speaking to you through them, encouraging and challenging you and pushing you to go that way. Like Jesus has the answers and he invites us to ask our questions and he wants to give us his truth. Now, in our text, there's one more question that's going to get asked. But this time, it isn't the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians that ask the question. After taking all of these questions in, Jesus says, hey, I've got one. Like, I've got a question. And he isn't doing it to shame them. Like, this isn't how Jesus works. He's simply saying, I've got a question for you. I want to teach you some truth. And so he's got a question for them. But listen, the question that he's gonna ask this crowd is ultimately gonna get, get at a question that you and I have to answer as well, right? Jesus welcomes all of our questions and he can't wait to answer them, but we must know that the question he is going to ask is far more important. It's far more impactful. Here's what he asks: Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. And so he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord, and he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all, and from that day, no one dared question him anymore. Okay, this is a little bit confusing because we're not Jewish in the first century, most of us at least, right? Here's the challenge that Jesus is bringing. See, the Jewish people believed that the son of David, one of his ancestors, would come as the Messiah who would rescue them. But their belief and their point of view is that the son of David would be a powerful man with the emphasis on the word man, that he would be a political leader. He would lead a political revolt and that he would rescue them on this earth, in this kingdom. And they expected that man to be a descendant of, this, of David. And what Jesus is pointing out to them is that David, the ancestor, would never refer to one of his descendants as Lord. You just would never speak that way. Like, think about it. I have a four-year-old son. I am never, ever, no matter what, going to call him Lord, right? I don't care how good he is. I don't care how powerful he becomes someday. I will never call, because you just, you don't speak that way about your kids and your descendants. We don't speak that way, especially didn't in this culture. He's pointing out to them. It does not make sense that David would call one of his descendants Lord, but in Psalm 110, that's exactly what he does. See, the Pharisees knew Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. What that means is that it was a psalm speaking about the future Messiah that would come. Everybody agreed Psalm 110 is speaking about Jesus. And in that psalm, David says, Lord God declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Who will sit at the right hand of God in the kingdom? Jesus will. Jesus will. Jesus will. And so Jesus is saying, this son of David couldn't be a man because you would never call him Lord. He must be much more than that, much bigger than that. He must be like supernatural. He must be God. Fully human, but fully God. And while the language feels a bit confusing to you and I, this crowd knew exactly what he was saying exactly what he was implying. And here's what he meant. Here's what he was telling. Hey, Pharisees, I know you're here to trap me. I know you don't like me. I know you want to get rid of me, but, but I am the Messiah. I am that son of David. Like, I am the rescuer who is here to rescue you. Right? Not only did Jesus have the answers to all of their questions, but here's what's true. He is the answer to their biggest question. He himself is the answer to, his, to their biggest question. That's the rest of our big idea. Jesus has the answers, and that should bring us much relief and joy of followers of him. He has the answers to our questions, and he's not afraid of our questions. But even more importantly, to our deepest need and our biggest question in our life. Jesus is the answer to that one. Every single one of us has questions that we would love to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and ask him. And he tells us, please come do that. Come and ask all your questions. But at the end of the day, God also has a question, and his question is far bigger and far more important. And how we answer that question will determine how we spend our eternity. Whether we spend our eternity in close, intimate, loving, unbroken relationship with the God of the universe in heaven in perfection, or will we spend eternity in agony, separated from Him? And here's that question Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that He is your rescuer? Do you believe that he came to die a death to save you from your sin and have you placed your trust and your hope and your confidence in him alone, not in your goodness or in your works, but in him to provide for you? If you would answer the question, do you think Jesus is the Messiah? If you would say no to that, my plea with you this morning is to change that answer, to think differently about that. Abandon this idea that you are good enough or smart enough or strong enough to do it on your own because you can't The beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to But if you do already believe that he is the Messiah, here's my challenge for you My challenge for you today is simply to live like it Live like you believe that it's true Bring your questions to Jesus and let him lead you and inform you and give you truth. Don't keep trying to figure out this world all on your own. And for those areas of your life that you're guarding and protecting and not bringing to Jesus, my plea for you this morning, open those up and ask, God, what would you have me do? Jesus is the Messiah. He has all the answers to all our questions, but far more importantly, he is the answer to our deepest question. So, Church, I pray and I hope and I'm begging God that we would be the kind of church that believes that's true and lives like it's true. Join me in asking God to make that true of us today. God, we have questions, real questions, real things we struggle with, real things we're frustrated by and concerned with, things we don't understand God, help us to feel the relief today where you invite us to bring those questions. And God, would you give us the motives that would come to seek and to understand and to learn not to try to trick you and trap you and prove you to be wrong and us to be right. Oh God, break us of those motives. Break us of our pride. But oh God, would we come to you, seek after your truth to learn and to listen, to follow and obey all motivated, God, by the reality that we can because of the work of Jesus and only because of the work of Jesus. We're glad, God, that you have answers to our questions, but we are far more thankful that you brought Jesus, you sent Jesus as the answer to our ultimate question of what will we do to have salvation? How can we have eternity and unity in relationship with you? God, there is nothing we can do but Jesus did all that we need. And we're thankful for that today. Remind us of that truth, that we would run to you day after day after day. Do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.